This is episode three of Alohomora for May 20th, 2012. I'm Caleb. I'm Rosie. And this is Nicola, who is a psychology student at the University of Kent. Say hi, Nikki. Hello. Hi, thanks for being on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. So Rosie, you are, you're going to be a new staff on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself real quick. Um, I'm new to the show, but I'm original staff for Elohimora. Um, I've been working with Mogonet for about six years now on the fanfiction website. Um, moderating and editing people's work and um, just generally being involved with the Harry Potter fandom. In and how, uh, how big is that community? Oh, it's massive. Um, I think we've got something like 15,000 authors on there. It's wow, one, It's that's one huge. of the biggest Harry Potter fanfiction databases on, online. That's really cool. So Nicola, now you're going to be our guest fan this week and you're a Slytherin and which is very important because we're covering the Sorting Hat chapter this week. So all the houses are represented. Tell us a little about yourself. Um, well, I, as Rosie said, I'm a student at the University of Kent. I have been a massive fan of Harry Potter since I was about 10 years old when my best friend threw the book at me and told me to read it. And ever since then, <laughs> I have loved her to pieces um, because I was introduced to the actual fandom in general through MuggleNet fanfiction. Um, when I was about um, 16, so that was a little bit too late, but um, I'm glad I def- I'm glad I'm definitely involved. And it's a brilliant opportunity to be here. So thank you again. No, yeah. thank you for filling our Slytherin spot. Yeah, Thanks I'm for very being proud on. Slytherin it is. Just to quickly explain what we are, we are on this podcast. We're rereading the book series and analyzing them, going through the chapters one by one, and we bring a new fan on the show every week. And uh, I just wanted to also announce that. A few weeks ago, we launched a new section for MuggleNet, not, not uh, some, some other different staff members on the site, called MuggleNet Academia, led by Keith Hawk and uh, actually uh, the Hogwarts professor. John Granger. And with, with other various professors and also fans, they are analyzing the books as well. I mean, they're not really going through you know, book by book as we are, but they're doing more collective theories, higher academic theories, you know, some lots of crazy stuff. So if you like Alohomora, you know, give, give MuggleNet Academia a, tra- a chance too. Why not? So, you know, this is part of MuggleNet's overall initiative to get back to the book series, recover the magic, and have a good time while doing it. So you should definitely check that out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. We would like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors, Audible, exclusively for fans of Alohomora. They are offering a free audio download. They have over 100,000 titles to choose from, so head over to audiblepodcast.com open to get yours now. Let's jump right into the recap from last week's show. Uh, We cover chapters four through six of Philosopher's Stone. We had some really great conversations happening on the main site and on the forums. Slytherin Girl. Um, Slytherin Girl says, Your conversation about Vernon's attitude to to wizards and Harry really got me thinking. What if Dudley had been born a wizard? It could have happened, and surely both Petunia and Vernon would have considered this, seeing as Petunia's sister was a witch, so there must have been magic in the blood. How would Vernon have reacted? Would it have changed their relationship with James and Lily? Would Vernon have tried to stamp the magic out of Dudley just as he tried to stamp the magic out of Harry? Or would he have been more accepting? Maybe they would have been more accepting of the entire wiz- uh, entire wizarding world if their own son had been a wizard. 
What do you guys think about that? I, I think it's so interesting. I mean, it would have been a complete, like, complete shift. I don't know what they do. I assume they try to stamp it out, but then Petunia would have had to explain uh, to Vernon the full the full matter, and you know, it's inevitable. He would have had to would have had to go to Hogwarts, and you know, it's possible they they could have played. Obviously, would have played a more integral role in the series, but I'm not I'm not sure how they would have reacted. Petunia is so devoted to Dudley that I think she wouldn't she wouldn't be able to just kind of cut him out of her life. I think she would have had to reconsider her whole kind of standpoint because the whole reason why she's against magic was that she considered herself not special compared to Lily. Um, so ah. she just she just because she was maybe she would herself have, off. She would have yeah. thought that Lily was a freak, and so. I don't know. Do you think she would have maybe had pride in Dudley a little bit? Yeah. She would have had to ah. reconsider it and think that magic wasn't necessarily a bad thing, even though that she didn't have it. She had created something special enough to have it as well. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, just, that's true. I mean, but I could see where she could maybe live vicariously through him with the ma- with the magic, but don't. I mean, I still think that she would still... I don't know. For some reason, I think she'd be even more better. Um, I mean, even if it is her son, like it's something that basically just skipped her completely. It's everyone else in her family except her. I mean, I guess not her parents, but her sister and now her son. I don't know. I feel like she would have been a little more better about it. And that's just me. I mean, we would hope. I mean, it is her son after all. But You'd yeah, hope she would be bitter. Yeah. I, I... No, not bitter. I mean, I, I, I would hope that she would be more accepting and I don't know better about it in a way, but it is Petunia, I guess. I don't think Vernon ever would have done. I personally think Vernon would have massive difficulty taking that into account. He has been brought up to think a certain way. And obviously now in his entire world would have been completely changed. I mean, he works in a drills factory, he gets up, he do- everything is in order for him. I think Petunia could have done, but definitely not Vernon. I think that would have been a, a really big trauma in their family. So what would he have done? I mean, do you think there are wizards who don't end up going to school? I don't think Dumbledore would have allowed that to happen. I think Dumbledore would have made uh, made Dudley go. I think Petunia would have encouraged that as well. And it possibly could have destroyed their family. And um, for Vernon to... Yeah, yeah, could have torn him apart, yeah. Um, and this comment came from the forums, um, from SDA15. Um, he or she says, You guys were discussing who owned Vault 713. I believe that Flamel owned the vault since it was his stone. I believe at one point in the book, Dumbledore says that Flamel knew someone was trying to steal the stone, so it moved for more safety to Hogwarts. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. I mean, I guess it would take a pretty pretty good note for the goblins to let um, Dumbledore access the vault than if it was Flamel's. I don't know how how well, what it would take for them to let someone else access. Well, I think Maybe Noah was joint, right. Maybe it's a joint vault. A joint um, account. Like yeah. a joint account because yeah, yeah, you mentioned Dumbledore's that. partner, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, in alchemy. Yeah. Partner in alchemy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I always thought it was the the Hogwarts vault. It, it seems like a lot of different uh, connections. If it's Flamel's vault or the Hogwarts vault, I mean, we don't see it getting used ever again, but. Which I think makes it, yeah, if we don't ever see, well, I guess we don't see any really, like, intense vaults, um, except for when we get to the Horcruxes later. So the fact that maybe it's not used a lot, I think that may 
support the theory that it's flamels. Flamels, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. That makes Interesting. Sense. Great this comment, is... SDA fifteen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you never think about it, but but Quirrell Quirrell got very far, and he managed to open the he managed to open the vault. It would seem without you know touching it with a goblin. Um, any scheme about how he might have done that? Well, how do we know he didn't use a goblin? Yeah, he may have killed a goblin or used the Imperius curse. Right. I mean, that seems to be the the surest way, being that you need their, uh, right. you need their their touch. Right. So uh, our next our next comments from Aberforth from the forums. I think it's Abbeyforth. 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 Oh, okay. That's very that's very clever. <laughs> Regarding Hagrid's potential cruelty to Dudley, I think it's more of a culture clash between the worlds. As we've seen later in the books, wizards have very different methods of punishment than Muggles. Although McGonagall disapproved, everyone else loved Moody Crouch, Crouch Junior's ferret episode. Nobody took a moment to think that it may hurt, may have hurt Malfoy or traumatized him. Even McGonagall only really seemed to care that Moody was breaking rules, not that Malfoy may have been hurt. Even in Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, we see that it's absolutely, it's apparently totally appropriate in wizarding culture to send a bunch of eleven-year-olds into the Forbidden Forest in the middle of the night with minimal supervision for, deten- for detention. I doubt he realized how different it was in a Muggle setting. While it was unnecessarily cruel, I don't think Hagrid meant it very maliciously. Relies on the fact that Muggles can't undo the magic, whereas wizards can. So, whereas Hagrid might have thought he was giving him a tail until someone else took it off because he forgot that they couldn't actually remove it. <clears throat> right. So Very it good would point. be a lesser punishment in the wizarding world than it was in the Muggle world. That's true. Yeah. Now I love this point of bringing up the eleven-year-olds um, going into the forest. It's always something that like stuck out for me, and it's such a good point that you know, just sending a bunch of very young kids to this deadly forest, barely supervised. Yeah, there's definitely a different yeah. um, sense of what punishment um, to use in the wizarding world. And we know that Argus Filch is is not have the best uh, punishment strategies. I, I feel like there are a few scenes where he talks about hanging kids up by their ankles that would in, in the dungeons. <laughs> I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> oh my. Just we love to read your comments and, you know, continue the discussion. So keep going there. And you know, thanks again for submitting these. Yeah, Happy they were fourth, they were great for continuing the discussion. We love it. So our special feature last week was the ones that everyone's received on Pottermore. Um but obviously I wasn't here and neither was our special guest for the week, Nicola. Um so we're gonna start by talking about our ones as well and um then read some of the comments and see if you guys, our fans, agreed that the ones actually are pretty accurate when it comes to personalities. Um, that seems so, to be true. Yeah, it seems to be, but what, what, what's your wand, Rosie? Uh, my wand is a 14 and a half inches um, Hawthorne and Unicorn tail wand, um, with, uh, it, it, and it's slightly swishy, which I always like. Um, <laughs> Sounds nice. <laughs> it's described as faithful and consistent, um, as well as complex and intriguing. Um, which I think is quite a nice description of myself. <laughs> Absolutely, it sounds like you. Um, it also says that it's good at healing, um, but can also be good for curses. So it's quite nice that I'm I'm a peaceful person, but, you know, don't cross me. <laughs> yes. In the Hufflepuff spirit. That's right. Definitely. I can stick up for myself if I need to. <laughs> how, does it feel, how does it feel to be slightly swishy? It's always fun to be slightly swishy. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I'm perfectly happy with my one. Nicola, what about you? I'm 11 and a half inches, large and dragon, hidden talents and unexpected effects. That is me to a oh my. T. 
Um, powerful and quick to learn with a touch of the flamboyant. I'm sorry. That, if you had to describe me, you don't, that, that's just it. I, when I read that, I couldn't believe it. It was, it's perfect. <laughs> me and flamboyant. <laughs> and um, yeah. it's temperamental and easy leads turn to the dark arts. Well, since I'm a Slytherin, um, and I have a particular interest in um, abnormal personality disorders, etc., yeah, not gonna lie. All right, perfect. Doing forensic psychology, etc. That's that's really so, cool. So yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. That's good. I mean, that goes along with I mean everything we said about how happy we were with our wands, and then all the fans too. Everyone that wrote into us said that they were Everybody. like incredibly happy with the wands that they had, which is yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I, she should. Joe should be given a lot of credit for this because so much thought obviously went into the wands and the sorting test had to be, and. You know, I was happy with it. Everyone has been. And they do, you know, they do seem to be accurate accurate to a T. Kind of That's weird, kind of crazy. I really don't know but, how they've done it. Man. How they've actually managed to make those questions so applicable to people. Because that, that, that was almost and, and, scary and, when I read mine. So. <laughs> I wonder, I, is there anyone out there who didn't like their wand? If you didn't like your wand, you should write in and tell us, because we're curious as to why. I mean, you guys remember the test for it, but some of the questions seemed almost... Uh, completely unconnected like if you would rather walk through the forest or towards the beach or towards the castle yeah that's what baffles me because reading those questions when i took the the test i was like how is this going to figure out my wand so perfectly and uh, you know like everyone has said it comes out perfectly that's what's so brilliant and mind-boggling about it is these very um obscure seemingly obscure questions just pinpoint you perfectly i mean i mean questions like that one i just said they seem to be looking at more of your, your sensitivities or your, your sort of personal, you know, feelings, as opposed to with uh, the sorting test, it seems to be, what do you really believe your, your, you know, your preferences, your virtues the, with the, with the wand, it seems more reflexive, like your, your instinctual feelings in a matter, like also with the, uh, I think there's an open chest and you can pick between various artifacts, uh, between a mirror, a mm-hmm. key, Yep, a I scroll. remember that one. Yep. Yeah. And I remember, I remember very cleverly picking the key because I thought, It'll be able to open the chest later, and I can have all of them. <laughs> I think but, I picked the scroll. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember, though. I honestly can't remember. It was no. so long ago at this point. Thanks for yeah. more. Yeah, so the general consensus is that these ones are incredibly accurate for personalities, and we've got some great comments um, from our main site. Um, Scarlet Snitch says, Saying the wood is magic and the core comes from a magical living being, we could also assume for this argument that it is a sentient source of cognition. Um, the wand imbibes the magic of the wizard as they use the wand, um, and this act would increase the power of the magic over time. As the wand source is magic and living, it would probably recognise similar characteristics in the wizard looking for a wand, and that's how a wand chooses the wizard. Do you guys agree that it's the the wand's kind of living personality that makes it seek similar characteristics, or can you have a wand that is contrasting your personality but still complementing it as well i i don't know because i mean especially with all of us knowing our wands everything about the wand complements us so well and you know the wood and the core and even the the flexibility so and the combination of those two yeah i I think it would be hard to have a contrasting wand i feel like you'd constantly be battling between the you know the powers between the wizard and the wand would be battling definitely yeah and if you remember with Meg's wand, it was actually a, kind of an adamant, adamant thing, and it, it needed a powerful person to kind of contain it, and that seems to match the attitude. 
So mm-hmm. maybe the wand is this sort of a magical clone or, or wand clone of the personality to, to the nearest participle, you know? So thinking about that, when we um, have wands that are passed down from person to person, such as Ron's wand was passed down from one of his older brothers, and then obviously that's the myth of the Elder Wand, how do right. those ones reflect the magic of their owners? Well, there's a, we actually got a great comment on the website about that specifically um, from Lily James. Um, they say, there are many cases of family wands being used. Neville uses his father's wand, Ron uses his brother's, and Draco uses his mother's for a time. Although all the wands appeared to perform magic well, though Hermione's wand and even the Blackthorn wand didn't perform to equal standards for Harry as Neville, Ron, or Draco's wands did for them. Yet one thing in common with all three wands that differs for Harry's use of the Blackthorn and Hermione's wand is that they were all originally wands from within immediate family, parents or siblings. Maybe this is because family members often have similar traits. If Ron is like his brother, which he is, Neville is like his father, which we are told he is, and Draco is like his mother, well, clearly, then it would follow that wands who perform better with um, compatible owners than those who similar traits and related to the owner would possibly be able to work with the wand. Yeah. Good point. Do you think it's possible that wands uh, keep a sort of memory of past users? Or, or I, I know the Elder Wand had this. It, it had, you know, collected maybe some powerful magics from past users. But what if family wands also reflect a little bit of the power of, or the usage of past uh, family members? Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. Um, I mean, that, that just plays into how, you know, wands have this sentience where they're able to, to grow with the, the user. And in this case, if it goes from one user to another. Yeah, and the the elder wand can do this a little bit more than other wands, I believe. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's um, something that's definitely true for the elder wand. It has this um, greater capacity to do so than probably these other wands. And right, exactly because of the wood, because of the you know everything, and you know, I, I believe it almost has a like a bloodthirstiness because it traveled from so many different members. It it adopted their all these personalities. Right. The only thing we actually know about the Elder Wand is that it's made from Elder, isn't it? We don't know anything about a core at all. Isn't the so, core... From a, a hair of a Thrustral. Yeah, Thrustral hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what does Pottermore say about that? Can we look it up? I don't... I I'm don't not sure Pottermore says anything about it. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about the Thrustral hair. So. I, don't think, I don't think we've gotten there um, yet. But we know that it's not... Um, obviously it's not from Ollivander because he doesn't use Thestral hair. Right. And, uh, you know. So let's toss that to the fans. Tell us what you think um, the Thestral hair does for the Elder Wand. It's, it's incredibly unique and, you know, the connection to death. You can only see a Thestral if you've seen death. Yep. So you, we can say that Thestrals have some sort of affinity or connection to death and therefore the Elder Wand as well. It has uh, otherworldly. So yeah, go into the forums and let's, uh, we'll talk about it next episode. It works really beautifully with the story. It does. And there was actually a comment on the forums made by SilverDoe25. Um, They say, last note on wands. Do you ever wonder, one, what Dumbledore's original wand was? And two, where is it since he began using the Elder Wand? She uh, hears, he says, let's have a peek inside Hagrid's pink umbrella now. (laughs) Oh, awesome. That's really interesting. Wow. I, I... Yeah, I'm baffled at what Dumbledore's original wand might have been. Come on, Joe, let us know. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I think it's we, a... need, we need more. We need more for Dumbledore. <laughs> well, if we'd, if any uh, noble fans would like to go through all the wand woods and cores and try to try to find it, we can speculate. Yeah, try think, and pick one out. Do you think out. that he even got his wand from Ollivander? I mean, I guess I'm it would sure make sense, but you know, 
Yeah, I guess he would. So we know that his core would be Dragon Heart String, Unicorn Hair, or um, well, Phoenix, Phoenix would make sense, right? Phoenix Tail Feather. Yeah, maybe it was a, it might. I would think in Phoenix just because of his affinity for Fox, but you never know. It could be it could be Unicorn. I have Ollivander's shop has been there since the 1500s, hasn't it? So he potentially is hundreds and hundreds of years old and would have oh, been there. Oh, Ollivander's? Ollivander's has been there since 382 BC. Yeah. Okay, I so. got the wrong date. <laughs> Good one, Caleb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Walking encyclopedia, I'm telling you. That's so. right. <laughs> so do you think it was originally the same Ollivander, or has there been generations of Ollivanders making one? Oh, I think oh, it's generations. generations. Yeah, definitely generations. I mean, Ollivander's an old guy. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> so we have we have one more really great comment um, on wands that we took off the forums by Patronus Caster. Um, the comment is: Can different types of wood be combined to make a wand? What about cores? Does it make the Ooh. wand more powerful, or is it not possible? And can a witch or wizard use more than one wand on a spell? And obviously, that last part we learned that yes, you can use more than one wand on a spell because. In the last book, spoiler alert, you know, when Harry takes all the wands and uses seven of them to get Lucius Malfoy. Seven? Uh, I don't think it, it, I can't think of the number three, four. It's a lot. I do not, I do not think that woods can be combined or cores that can be combined, that they cannot be combined. Um, Maybe that's just my theory, but I don't think they would work as well. I think it would dilute the, um, the uniqueness of each of those things. And if we, uh, we're, we're about to get into the question of the week where we talk about wands as being sentient life forms. If wands were people and you talked about fusing them, you're, you're talking about a Frankenstein-esque wand that is a, oh my gosh, it's, it's horrible, scary to conceive of. <laughs> I think it definitely may have been attempted before, but probably not to um, reach a good end. Well, Ollivander, with his thirst for greatness, might have done a little bit yeah. of experiments. He dabbles, he dabbles in some shifty experiments for sure. Last week, uh, in response to all this wand argument, I actually created my question of the week, which was, knowing what we know about wands, their ability to choose their master as well as possibly communicate with each other, as proven by the effects of Priori and Contantum, um, to what degree do we think wands can really think? Like, how can they, do they have, do they have thoughts? Do they have, do they have moods? I mean, we know that with a wood and a core, they can, it, it creates certain effects and creates these almost moody personalities, so to what degree can they act on their own? We know it uh, with the prior incantantum, the wand flipped over in Harry's hand when Voldemort was chasing him, and that was because of the prior incantantum. Um, and on top of this question, I also said, uh, considering the portraits of Hogwarts, chocolate frogs, and all these other potentially sentient things, if we accept that these things have a degree of, of intelligence, can magic legitimately inspire life or just duplicate the appearance of it? And uh, we got a lot of great comments, but just briefly again, what, what do you guys think of that? I think they're shadows. I think... I, I think there's possibly a, sort of a form of spell possibly cre- to create one within the frame or something like that of just a sort of um, a, a mixture of different me- memories and emotions and only that can create the picture and that's how they can possibly interact and those and only those shadows can create the emotions we see when Sirius Black comes in and we're screaming from um, the... Um, fat lady so but only that only the yeah. shadows i mean obviously we see um oh i can't remember his name now the um the gadigan is that he's he's so bolstery and so excitable i think possibly he was um a lot more like that in real life and it's only we only see a part of his personality but no more than that yeah i agree 
I think they're kind of the imprint of a person, not quite as much as a ghost. A ghost is kind of the whole personality that's just not moved on. But the exactly. portraits seem to kind of encompass them as they were in a particular moment. So as they were captured in that picture. So the fat lady is always kind of in that kind of party mode that she was yeah. or at least in the movies. She's definitely always kind of slightly drunk or slightly showing off. Um, yeah. The Cadigan's always about to start a quest and is always looking for that next ah, yeah. excitement. Um, right. Because what, of... what we came up with last episode was that uh, the, uh, you know, a picture, a picture captures the full image, but a wizard, a wizard photograph goes deeper and it captures these like deeper levels in the instant as well. But it can see like a hundred percent more. I don't know. I think you have it backwards. Yeah, I think you have it backwards. Yeah, yeah, the portrait can talk and the, the wizard photographs can't. Um, All right, right. Sorry, photographs versus versus portraits. Portraits yeah. when you when you paint, those seem to capture the uh, the personality and and as yeah. you're saying, the the essence of the person. What I really want to know is, do you think the portrait has to be made straight away when someone dies, or it has to be there before someone dies for them to can be made during their lifetime? Yeah, but then it, could you have a conversation with yourself if you have a portrait of yourself? No, I think they have to be dead. With Dumbledore. In which case, could Harry commission a portrait of Lillian James or Sirius? Uh, and, and was that really Dumbledore in the portrait, or, or had he really moved on? And if it was Dumbledore in the portrait, why are we sad that he's dead? Hmm. A lot of ethical concerns. So let's, let's, let's read some of these comments. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is from Nightstrike91. She, uh, he or she responded directly on the main page where we were letting fans answer the question of the week. My thoughts about the photographs and portraits are what many people all seem to believe, that they are catching what's in the frame at that exact moment. For photographs, simply that one moment of feelings, expressions, and thoughts. For portraits, though, I believe the whole person who he, she is in that moment is captured. Every memory, every feeling, every relationship carries on past death, but the portrait won't be able to evolve and change as a living person would have. Communicate and follow orders, sure. Learning names and recognizing people, sure. But Dumbledore, for example, wouldn't be able to love a new unknown sister because he didn't have any knowledge of her in real life. So, okay, so you can't learn anything new. It's just the, you know, he or she is saying it's just the existing knowledge or experiences that that person had that they can feed off of. Now, how does the painter know all of those experiences and put that in the painting? Or is that the actual soul? Like, this is, this is so problematic for me. I, I don't... Because it seems like, potentially, Dumbledore's alive and well in this painting and just, just chilling. And is he there for eternity? <laughs> Right, but he can only talk about things he already knows. Like, he can't learn anything new, but but that's not true either because Snape tells him things. I don't want to get too spoilery here, but yeah, Snape tells him things and then Dumbledore gives him suggestions based on those things, so... And Harry talks to him at the end? I think, though, that... So thinking about this from, like, a scientific perspective, like, I, th- cool. I think that it make it still makes sense that they're able to have somewhat new conversations but those conversations can only happen because it draws upon in this case Dumbledore's knowledge of things that were going on while he was alive he would have been able to give those he would have been able to give those same pieces of advice had he been alive so I think it has a lot to do with again thinking um science wise um with the brain like you have um, memories stored in your brain in the in certain parts of your brain and I think that there's this some sort of magical connection between the experiences and the memories you have from life that are able to be used um, 
after in this case after you are dead but but caleb i'm not sure if that's necessarily true because what about we have countless other experiences of the portraits interacting with each other and learning new things recognizing people after having seen them you know the fat lady you know, ser- you know not to spoil serious black has an interaction with her and she she remains scarred you know mm. the painting was scarred and she remembers that uh, but he was in gryffindor so she would know him already that's true that, oh, that is true, but I'm just saying that she remembers the fact of having being attacked, and that becomes a memory for her after having beca- well, become. Well, well, yes, but I, what Caleb is saying that is that what the portrait knows or experienced in their lifetime is the only things that can be drawn upon. So she knows Sirius because he was in Gryffindor, so that's why she remembers and recognizes him. Um, although, again, that's can't be true because because she's, she's ne- dead she's not yeah a living person she learns those characters she learns those students as a portrait so yeah i just thought about that at the same time hmm. so this is this is clearly a tricky subject um let's have portraits, let's have portraits can learn from when they are portraits they can experience things and remember those things that they experience but as they wouldn't be able to learn anything right. that happened in the outside world because no one's introduced that to them Mm, unless they've gone and seen it in someone else's portrait yeah oh do you think they can take from each other like that well they all talk to each other well yeah but do you think they can feed off each other's experiences and that's how it's almost like it creates a somewhat parallel universe where they are existing and learning from one another and interacting with the so to speak the more realistic um universe ah baffling and i'd agree that there's still shadows but they are these separate entities. It's it's very it's very strange. Again, it brings it right back to that chalk zone where there's this like own little world that they live in, mm. that they can experience and learn from each other in that world. It's so strange. Definitely, it's really interesting if you think about how many aspects of the Harry Potter books are about the fear of death, and yet you've got all of these different ways of continuing to live after death. What, whether you're a ghost, any of whether you... you're a poltergeist, whether you're a portrait. Would any of you come back as a ghost or a portrait? No, not as a ghost. No. Maybe as a portrait, but because I, I would still, in theory, be moving on. But I, I would not come back as a ghost. It's like it's like having a Horcrux, though. It's like you can't, and, and we still haven't bridged the fact of is this the person or is this a, a new person? Because potentially the soul is is at rest, like Dumbledore's, and this is just a copy or something. It's like but they I, took his brain and stuck it in the painting. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I. I Personally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I, I kind of after that, because otherwise you're just caught in this parallel spot. You can't. You see actively everything that's going on in the real world, but you can't really touch it. You can't really be there. Almost like with the uh, resurrection stone. <laughs> right. Spoiler, but you you know what I'm saying. It's just it's not it's not full life. I wouldn't I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Right. But Dumbledore obviously chooses it, so it can't be all that bad. Well, are you conscious of it, though? That's, that's true. But Would your actual self, your conscious self, as in you or I are now, be actually aware of this shadow or this imprint in the real world? That's what I'm thinking. I, I think maybe not. We're going to talk about this more when we get into ghosts later, but you definitely have to make a conscious decision about what you want to do before you die. So, so another part of that question, guys, was about how if wands can think or not. And I think this is a great comment from Snape's best student. And... Uh, I'm going I'm to assume you are he or she is, because uh, the name is that. I don't think wands can necessarily think, but feel. I think trees have the ability to feel, even if they don't have the mind to process it. Since wands are made from trees, Ollivander and other wand makers maybe enhance these feelings to almost thoughts. Because of all the different things wands are made up of, I think they have the ability to know who is their true master through magic. 
That's a, that's a pretty great comment. That is great. It kind of reminds me of Treebeard from Lord uh, of the Rings. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. How Tolkien, um, so obviously we probably have some fans who are also Tolkien fans, um, give so much um, personification to the trees in Lord of the Rings um, with Ents. Yep. And that also reminds me, uh, everyone should, should go ahead and give some love to our sponsors, Audible. They have so much to listen to, over 100,000 titles to choose from in pretty much every genre. Yeah, from fantasy, business, teen, fiction, nonfiction, romance, sci-fi, even newspapers and magazines. Yeah, exactly, Kat. I mean, Audible is the best place for all your audio downloading needs. And right now, Audible has a really great special offer for our U.S. and Canadian listeners. They can visit our unique link created specifically for them and get a free audio download today, right now. So go. Go right now to audiblepodcast.com slash open. It's funny that you actually mentioned uh, Lord of the Rings because I actually just downloaded Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring the other day. And I got to say the quality is pretty good and I downloaded it right to my iPod. It was pretty easy. I think I'm going to go browse some more books actually. I'm sure you can find something awesome on there. After all, Audible is the leading provider of digital audio entertainment. Yep. So every one of our listeners should take a minute to visit the site and start downloading directly to their computer. For easy listening on burned CDs, MP3 players, and even your iPad, iPhones, or Androids. Again, the website made just for you is Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, dot com, slash, open, O-P-E-N. So visit audiblepodcast.com, slash, open, for your free download today. Great, so let's jump right into our discussion of the chapters this week. We are going to be covering chapters 7 and 8, The Sorting Hat and The Potions Master. Ooh. <laughs> so, I, I want to take this chapter because it's just it's so interesting. So, you know, McGonagall has just told the first years that they're about to be sorted. They're very scared. And uh, uh, this is the same actually in the movie. The first magical influence we get before they even get into the Great Hall are the ghosts, the Hogwarts ghosts. And Harry is not really surprised, as with a lot of things in the book. And, you know, I just want to talk about this briefly, about how do, how do ghosts work? I mean, we've already talked about portraits and wands, and um, especially with the portraits and photographs, potentially <clears throat> dead, dead people living in some capacity on Earth. Now, we know ghosts, for a fact, are those, are those souls who you know, in life were scared of death and therefore, you know, consciously or not chose to become ghosts and stay on earth. So I just want to have a brief discussion of, of those. How does one really become a ghost and can humans do it? And, you know, how, how in general, how in general does ghostification work? I'm just really curious. And they seem to have a, like we said with portraits, a parallel universe where, you know, only ghosts exist, talk to each other. We know they have clubs that don't allow nearly headless Nick in. What do you think? Well, I mean, J.K.R. has said, I mean, very little, surprisingly, on ghosts. But the one thing that she has said over and over again is that only wizards can become ghosts and that they have to choose the path before they die. So it has to be a conscious decision. Do we think Myrtle chose that? Um, I think Myrtle wouldn't have wanted to die straight away. She would have been too confused. So I think she would have chosen what she considered life over death. Yeah. Because she was, you know, murdered, essentially. I wonder if in the instant of death, death, you get like a wizard Morpheus gives you the red pill or the blue pill and you can either become a ghost or you can go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always wondered, like, how does that how does that decision work? 
Uh, is it some sort of split decision? Is there, like you, know, like you said, um, some Morpheus? I don't know. I well, don't I mean, know. or Dumbledore. It's it's just like you know, drying up a will before we die. Do we want to be buried or cremated? But then, what happens to people like Myrtle, where the the death is very sudden? Do you think those? Yeah, people, I doubt she considered it. Yeah, do you think those people who die suddenly, especially younger people, are much more likely to come back as ghosts? I think it's the idea of didn't um. Nearly Headless Nick describe it as heading towards the light and deciding he didn't want to go towards it. So hmm. he, he just didn't go through that door and just kind of remained behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, In this very first chapter, she's, uh, Joe is setting up so many ideas about how death actually works. Uh, we, we know that there's an afterlife, and Harry's not very surprised because he's 11, but uh, there is an act, there's an afterlife in Harry Potter. And you can choose if you if you want to, you can stay and be a ghost. And I don't know what the process of becoming a Hogwarts ghost is, but I, I guess Dumbledore and Hogwarts are just very welcoming to lost souls. And you can come in, or maybe like in the case of Myrtle, she couldn't help but haunt the U bend and, and the and the bathroom where she died. But you know, they they just naturally become a part of existence. And Professor Binns, you know, he just he died in sleep and just woke up the next morning, and continued his class. So. <laughs> They're, they're very interesting creatures. Um, another thing I was thinking about is they, it's actually, maybe it's kind of silly, but they're always wearing clothes. And I believe uh, when Nearly Headless Nick is dressing up for his party, he, he I, I, believe, I believe he changes his outfit. <laughs> so I was wondering, where do ghost clothes come from? No one ever talks about the ghost clothes. Do they, are these clothes that people have died in? Or is there a, is there a ghost mall? You're like a personal shopper. Yeah, because they, they have clubs. They have, there's some sort of civilization parallel. What? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I when thinking about this initially, I was definitely assuming that they um that they're wearing the clothes they die in. But then I forgot about the party. I guess yeah, I I didn't remember that he changes clothes. But all, this part also made me wonder. So um, as you as we see, there's a ghost who's wearing tights. Do we think that this is maybe the gray lady who um well spoiler oh, alert okay. um is Helena Ravenclaw? Do we think that may be her? Because there was always a point, I think J.K.R. said in some interview, um, much after Philosopher's Stone came out, that we have seen the ghost of Ravenclaw before, but I could never find where she's mentioned in the passage, in the books, um, before mm. we actually learn her story. So I wonder if this is it. It must be. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I definitely think it's the clothes that, that they wear when they die in. I mean, the Bloody Baron is covered in blood. Yeah. And, you know, obviously he was murdered, so. Yeah. Wait, I, I thought he committed yeah, suicide. Yeah, he kills himself. Oh, yeah. suicide, sorry. Wrong wrong ghost. Right. Oh, spoiler alert, a little late. Sorry. That's <laughs> eh, all right. It's not the big spoiler. Um, There's more of a not spoiler really. this, this is what re- This is what really got, gets me, though. Those clothes, are those dead clothes? How do you kill clothes? Well, Think about it. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. When you get a hole in it, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, they... I, think, I think it just dies with the person. Yeah. I think to an extent you need to have a bit of artistic license here. I mean, having 11-year-olds witness kind of naked ghosts wandering around wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. Oh, no, gosh. probably not. I'm just thinking about the 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 uh, ontological concerns about ghost clothes. I still can't fathom that they exist. And, you know, if I'm going to say that ghosts exist, I have to say that ghost clothes... Uh, anyway, we can talk about that later. Um, so is there like a, like into... a mall of America? Is that what you're saying? Like, with ghost clothes? Yeah, I mean, they just, they probably run into each other in the shop. You know, they flow right through each other, in fact. Anyway, <laughs> um, let's jump right into a sorting hat discussion. Because as we know, this is the time that all the, all the first years get sorted in front of everyone. Harry's scared. 
Um, and we know of the Sorting Hat. It has a bit of a personality. We There's that one line uh, in a later book where he's talking about how the founders put some some brains in him. So we know that his, his personality is a kind of a collaboration of all of them. And uh, did you did you say, Kat, that it's a it's a growing personality? Um, yeah. Back in an interview in two thousand, um, Joe said that the character you might be most surprised to see evolve is none other than the Sorting Hat. There is more to the Sorting Hat than what you have read in the first three books. Obviously, this is after Prisoner of Azkaban, but right. uh, she continues to say readers will find out what the Sorting Hat becomes as they get into future books. So obviously, this is a. Uh, Maybe she was even planning something a bit more for the Sorting Hat, other than, you know, of course, giving Neville the sword later. But what a complex character, and to what degree do we think it, it can think? I, I know this has been a running theme in our, in our shows, but let, let's talk about him a little bit, or her. What, what is its gender? Well, I think, while we're at I it. think given it, well, I guess it's the, it's really the movie that makes it a male voice, thinking about it. The book never really um, makes any indication if it's a male or female voice, so that's interesting, actually. It's Pat. It's actually two females and two males. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's... I mean, well, also you have to think that it's Godric Gryffindor's... It was originally his hat, so I guess that sort of makes sense that it may be male if it comes more from him. That would make sense. Um, Yeah. But I've all... Yeah, I've always wondered, like, how... I mean, like you mentioned it, we know that they sort of, you know, collaborated to put the magic in it to use as a sorting mechanism, but... How did they actually do that? Like, what did they do to you know, put their their philosophy of what their house should be into this hat? I think they they it wasn't a matter of program. They literally took some of their they put their brain or their their personalities inside this hat, and, we, and this it's this great collaboration of all of them. Hmm. Yeah, well, we're going to um, talk about the Sorting Hat. I mean, in depth a lot later in our uh, in our special feature. Yep. Yep. So, as we know, Harry is deathly afraid that he's going to be sorted into Slytherin. Uh, this is while we're meeting these other these other Slytherins, and Millicent Bulstrode is called up, and uh, she's described as... Here, here's a line from the narrator. Perhaps it was Harry's imagination, after all he'd heard about Slytherin, but he thought they looked like an unpleasant lot. This is in regards to the entire Slytherin table. And, you know, the bloody Baron is the Slytherin ghost, and it's all bloody, and he's, he's generally a, a nasty guy, it looks like. Millicent Bolstrode, just the name of her, this this random first year Slytherin who will, you know, Hermione has that confrontation confrontation with later. Um, they're just why are they so ugly? We see this. It's it's just kind of like with the Dursleys. The the evil characters are painted as such as these. You, you kind of want to hate them because they're not very attractive. Um, you know, what do you think about this? We're getting Slytherin prejudice at the very very beginning. Yeah, I think it's just like you said, just like with the Dursleys, but even maybe even more so here. I think Joe is setting up this us versus them from the perspective of Harry um, very early, even though he doesn't really know too much about the Slytherin house or people in it. He's, I mean, it's clear that he sees them as the opposite of what um, is good. Yeah. I I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of Malfoy fans out there that are going to uh, disagree with that because... Uh, you know, he's described as, you know, not ugly. He's, I mean, fairly kind of dreamy. That He's described as pale, pointed face with fine bones. You know, ugly people don't generally have fine bones, so. Yeah. But Kat, Kat, Draco is a son of a banshee. <laughs> That's Draco's true. Draco's misunderstood. That's true. He's misunderstood. No, and <laughs> yes. Yeah, he oh, definitely I'm sorry, is. I'm sorry, Nicolette. 
He, he in is. In fact, you should be weighing in on this. I agree that he is misunderstood, but at this point, we do not know that. I think right, that that's true. They he they are all set up as the the bad guys. I think there's a big difference between being described as looking unpleasant and looking ugly. Um, they're not necessarily ugly looking. They're just mean and they're they're evil looking. Right. Why are um, Slytherin so mean? <laughs> I'm just a Hufflepuff here saying it, but let's be honest here. In the in the books, they're just they're a mean lot, and and we gotta, of course, we gotta be nice to them. Snape was great, but Snape's mean, dude. Like, why? I mean, at this why point, can't we all just get along. Yeah, I think at this point, there's just yeah, they are the mean guys, and you know that's that's the author setting up that um, antagonistic aspect of the. the, the yeah, book. I mean, how boring would the book be if everybody was nice? Yeah, exactly. Oh, Nicola, I as a Slytherin, yeah. what do you I, think about I just, this? I know we've been referred to as the wisest of creatures. I, we have, it's written here. And, um, and Merlin was a Slytherin. No, no, I know. We, I, I believe Slytherins, we mm. are, we have greatness inside us and Slytherin will help us that way. Don't, I'm not going to lie, I can't deny, as, um, as um, our prefect says on Pottermore, dark wizards have come out of this house, but they have come out of every other house too. That definitely is not, um, shown within the first few pages of the book but we get respect because we are good at what we do we are we have won the house championships as we are told six times in a row and snape is proud of us and he is good to his deliverance because he knows we have the potential inside us to be great and be amazing and i know voldemort is evil but by god he's good yeah (laughs) you sound like olivander (laughs) <laughs> I have to agree and we look after our own we are we don't clamber over each other as it says in the Pottermore um, introduction we are brothers and we are family oh so that's great I definitely think that puts Slytherins apart and yes okay that sometimes might make us fearful and evil but you always need you always need someone who's going to put what they want what is going to be best even if it causes great evil now but whatever is best in the future the greater good is what i'm getting at the greater good hmm. <laughs> I, th- I think i think you made a lot of slytherin fans happy yeah and, and I, I don't agree. mean to i don't mean to bash them i just mean like in this in this context they do joe makes them ugly it's uh, yeah. and you know Warner Brothers I, I also agree. made them ugly. Yeah, I think we we don't get what you just mentioned until much later, which I think Wait, is, yeah. makes it even more interesting. Noah, did you just say Warner Brothers makes them ugly? Yeah, they do. Tom You've Felton. got a lot of angry Tom Felton fans yelling <laughs> at you right now. No, Draco Draco's great. I'm talking about the Slytherin Quidditch team. You got uh the, the Quidditch captain, Flint, the the yeah. entire team. You you can't deny that they're they're kind of big and hulking with the with the teeth and. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. Oh. All right, I'll give you that one. All right, but little Harry doesn't want to be in Slytherin, as we see on page one. Not Slytherin. Not Slytherin, eh? Said the small voice. Are you sure? You could be great, you know. It's all here in your head, and Slytherin will help you on the way to greatness. No doubt about that. No. Well, if you're sure, better be Gryffindor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like. What do we think about this? Did Harry choose his own house? Can you choose your house? Was the hat really going to place him in Slytherin first? Notice the repeat of great here, just like Ollivander was talking about great and greatness 
it seems the hat is almost impartial to, to good and evil. So, I mean, so I guess my main question is, uh, did, did Harry have the big choice in here? And when you're sorted, do you really have a choice? Well, I think it definitely is his choice. I mean, I think it's later in the series. Uh, I could be wrong. That Dumbledore mentions the reason the hat almost put him in Slytherin was because of this connection that he has with Voldemort, which will obviously break down later as we get more into that. But I, I mean, think all in all that it is his choice. I think that's what the series is built on. Harry's choices, choices in general. So I, and the hat, you know, is definitely taking his choice uh, into consideration as he places them there. Well, there's a, there's a great bit on Pottermore about this actually um, in the hat stalls section. Um, it talks a little bit about choice and kind of arguing with the hat. Uh, let me, I'm going to read what it says. It says of Harry Potter's contemporaries, Hermione Granger and Neville Longbottom became closest to being hat stalls. The Sorting Hat spent nearly four minutes trying to decide whether it should place Hermione in Ravenclaw or Gryffindor. In Neville's case, the hat was determined to place him in Gryffindor. Neville, intimidated by that house's reputation for bravery, requested a placing in Hufflepuff. Their silent wrangling resulted in triumph for the hat. So, yeah, it sounds like you can definitely choose. I mean, Neville lost the battle, but Harry won it. Yeah, I don't oh, think we would have happily had Neville. <laughs> I think it's that that last the their silent wrangling, you know, where Neville was not as um um committed to that decision for Hufflepuff, where it seems like Harry, from this description, sounds like he was much more committed to, you know, demanding something other than Slytherin. So I right, think... ne- Neville was doing it because he was scared. Harry was doing it because he didn't want to be what he had heard about Slytherin. Right. Keep in mind that the the hat knows what Neville went through. The hat knows mm-hmm. everything because every time it goes on someone's head, it like downloads the consciousness. So the Sorting Hat got both of his parents, and just at, as soon as it was placed on Neville's head, and maybe a few others, it learned what happened to the to the long bottoms. bottoms. Yeah, and maybe out of a personal feeling, the Sorting Hat knew he had to put him in Gryffindor because that's what his parents would have wanted. Because that's what Neville wanted deep down. What do you think about, in Hermione's case, do you think she had a, a say in it, or she just kind of sat there and let it happen? Because, hmm. yeah. I mean, we as, we as readers, I mean, everybody wonders, why isn't she in Ravenclaw? Well, of course you can be smart and be put in... Uh, well, of course. Gryffindor. I think it's a matter of your preferences and your beliefs. Yeah. Like, she, she knew, like, we know at the end, I, I'm not sure if it's in the book as well, but at the end of the movie, Hermione's saying, intelligence is great, but, but bravery... Bravery is this true, uh, this true something. So maybe, she, as much as she loves intelligence, we know at the end of Deathly Hollow she's going to go. She's going to go out and fight. She's going to make some reckless calls, and we know she she personally values bravery and courageousness a bit above intelligence. I've always found Hermione a really fascinating character, mainly because she spent so much of this first book on her own, um, before the whole Halloween thing, and before yeah. she found, finally found Ron and Harry, she was always teased. She was always just told to shut up and told to go in the corner and told to just stop volunteering her own ideas. And to, to continue kind of being that person and not shutting yourself off and not just kind of withdrawing into yourself is an incredibly brave thing to do. Yeah. To to stand up for herself as a Gryffindor with all of this intelligence. She needs to be a Gryffindor. In Ravenclaw, it wouldn't have been the same effect. So um, I, I completely agree. Like As a Gryffindor, this... Like what you said is completely accurate. Um, that it her journey, especially in this book, just really you know starts to really show why she is a Gryffindor. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's she's one of my favorite Gryffindors for that reason. 
Yeah, Rosie, I, I never thought about it like that, that her bravery really shines through in the fact that she just kind of pushes on no matter what people say or think about her. I never thought about that. Good point. So so next in the chapter, uh, we get a few more lines. Uh, Dumbledore's there. Uh, and there's this peculiar, peculiar sentence from the narrator on page 122 of the U.S. edition. Dumbledore's silver hair was the only thing in the whole hall that shone as brightly as the ghosts. So I was wondering, you know, Normally I would have missed it, but I was really looking at the chapter. Was this merely descriptive, or has Joe just aligned Dumbledore with the ghosts? Is this foreshadowing of his eventual death, like a death clue? Or is it commenting that he has a connection to the other side, he's kind of otherworldly, or has some spiritual knowledge of death? Because we know that um, uh, in a few biblical stories, when you've just seen God or you've seen some sort of intelligence, your hair gets gray. And this is a, a kind of symbolic knowledge. But uh, w- what do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, I... Th- Definitely think it's more um, the otherworldly characterization because the first time I read it, um, not knowing really who Dumbledore was yet, he immediately seemed as this enigmatic, mystical person. No one really understands and is kind of set above everyone else. Um, I didn't really think about the ghost alignment. That's interesting. But yeah, for me, it's just this very like mystical creature that we don't really know about. I mean, yeah, we are, we already know. I mean... We're only a couple chapters in. We already know so much about how amazing he is as a wizard. I mean, we constantly get praise for his skills, him being the only one that you know who was ever scared of. So I think this is just Joe's way of saying, yes, he's amazing. He's great. Trust him. Yeah. And and the silveriness, and, and we're, we know the ghosts are friendly to a degree, and, and we, we want to trust Dumbledore, too. It's this whole sense of, like, mystical power. Yeah, absolutely. That emanates from him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then he comes up. He talks a little bit about um, talks a little about the school to the to the new students and the old, and he has everyone sing the song. And you know, everyone the the point of the song is to sing it with uh, whatever tune you like. So I thought it'd be interesting. <laughs> oh no, <and> kind of fun. <laughs> oh no, if we did it. Uh... Okay. Um, and you know, we can't. You got to purposely try to go out of rhythm with the others. So I. You know, some people in the forums were like, I wonder how this really would have sound sounded. Yeah, well, I, I really want to hear Fred and George's uh, funeral march version. Someone should do that. I'm going to do a rap. Hey, oh, you funeral march. I, I cannot pull off a funeral march. There's no way. <laughs> Come on, Noah, you can do it. All right. Um, let's give it a... Well, I could... I, let me just bring up YouTube, but just a, a various... Uh, no, no, I'm just going to go on my own. Just there's no, it. There's no music in the books. Why should I? Okay. That's right. Let's give it a try. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Okay. What? We'll do the rest and learn until our brains all rot. Yay! <laughs> Bravo. Oh, God, that was so That was awful. <laughs> so I think we can uh, all say that that would have sounded awful. Yup, 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 yup. I'm a little I couldn't awful. stop laughing. And now to get really serious. There was a, there's a forum in Noah's Nook, which is my special forum, where fans can go in and discuss the chapter with me prior to the podcast. And this was actually a comment from uh, user Mischief Managed. I was reading the Hogwarts song, and I've always loved the song because it's, well, the Hogwarts song. 
But as I read it again, I was struck by its words and message. I was really struck by the negative undertones of the song. It speaks of empty-minded students, of the fact that they'll have forgotten everything they learned before, and learning until their brains rot. While some parts of the song are definitely positive, such as the idea that Hogwarts has something to teach, no matter how young or old you are, and the bits like things worth knowing, interesting stuff, and do your best, we'll do the rest, which places students' responsibilities in learning, to me, these are almost completely overshadowed by the negative messages pre presented in the song, especially when the last line is, learn until our brains all rot. This isn't exactly the image I feel like I'd want to give a school. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't think about that, but when you read the song, it is kind of disgusting. Yeah, I never took a close enough look. That's Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Managed. Um... Yeah, until our brains are out. So I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of silly playing around with death, but we we know that's what Dumbledore and Hogwarts is all about. Like, death is ever present, but you have to be kind of humorous in the face of it. Well, and I mean too, like, <clears throat> excuse me, what all the kids sing gross little songs when they're that age. So I I guess I don't really seeing it as being too out of place. Well, this is the Hogwarts song. This is like the you know national it, it anthem. It doesn't come back, yeah. but this is huh. The national anthem, so to say. Yeah, I know what you mean. Right. Well, just of the school. So this this somehow must reflect the essence of the school. I think when Dumbledore is there, yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah, just uh, just an interesting thought. Thanks for uh, thanks for that mischief managed. Mischief is managed now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so then, as he's closing out the the semester, or he has a few words before the food. He says, "Nitwit, blubber, oddment, and tweak." And uh, there's actually a, there's actually a great article by the Hogwarts professor who is uh, doing that other podcast, Muggle uh, Net Academia, and he goes on about how each of those words is actually the put down of various houses, as in uh, a nitwit would be something a Ravenclaw would call an unsmart person. Huh. And I thought, and and actually, you know, his references kind of make sense. We can put the link in the show notes. Um, what what is Dumbledore doing here by just sort of basically silently announcing the strife of the houses? Is he, is he sort of commenting on that a little bit? Hmm. Would you say? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I am, I'm at a loss for it. I, this is something that I was never able to make sense of. Yeah, without reading the article, I'm not sure how much I can... I mean, I don't know. I always just thought they were just fun-sounding words. It's just Dumbledore being slightly strange and mm -hmm. crazy like Harry thinks he is. Right, yeah. That's mad. what I thought too. Let me uh, let me just read you something from the from the article. Uh, yeah, blubber in contrast is a word used on playgrounds in the English speaking world for fat. It is disparaging because children use it to be unkind to their peers who are heavier than the average kid and probably less athletic. Gryffindor, the jock or frat house, sees the other as less physically bold or courageous. For which condition an eleven year old would probably find blubber a handy signifier. So that that would just be so blubber would be the one for Gryffindor, as in they are these kind of uh, in John Granger's mind these jockey types. So interesting, but, he calls Gryffindor the frat house. He's uh, he's kind of he's kind of an open, funny guy. Uh, I don't know. But, I see that. I can see that as Gryffindor's is the frat house. <laughs> and uh, here's one for Oddment, which is a Slytherin. Let's see if he backs this up well. This is a word from the world of sewing and fabrics. An Oddment, if memory serves, is the remainder from the bolt of cloth. A remainder not lo not large enough to be usable in making anything significant. 
Slytherins are lovers of pure blood, and in this wholeness or integrity, the other to a Slytherin is any witch or wizard born with insufficient purity. And is, an is, why can't I say this word? An insufficiency that makes them an oddment of less, even no value. Nah, like, that, that's pretty good. I mean, so it's just cool that people are reading meanings into things that previously we thought, this is Dumbledore just saying, you know, random stuff. But they're, he's the sort of character that Joe's going to put lots of meaning into his work. Wait, are you purposely leaving out Tweak because it's a Hufflepuff one and you don't want to make your own house look bad? How dare you, cat? I'm going to read that now. Okay. <laughs> Tweak. Hufflepuff is the Hogwarts house for magical folk who are not smart, bold, or pure enough for the three houses described above. <laughs> that's Both. not true. Wow. I don't wow, like that's that. rough. I'm yeah. sorry. You shouldn't I, have read oh, that. God. I don't buy into that. Killing so. me. From Malfoy's comments in Madame Borkin's uh, in Philosopher's Stone, they seem to be the dustbin house where the nobodies wind up. Ouch! <laughs> that is rough. Oh my gosh. Don't like Cedric's it. Cedric's success in Goblet also suggests that glory is something of a stranger to Hufflepuff champions. Mm. All right, I think we should move on. I don't want to hear any more of that. That's awful. <laughs> no, we got to finish. So I have to doubt this is the Hufflepuff self-understanding. They look at the other and seek excess or imbalance, not excellence and virtue they lack. Hufflepuff witches and wizards are down-to-earth, humble, and real people. The other, for them, needs to be tweaked or adjusted to refine their excess and bring it to the mean, which, as Aristotle teaches, is where virtue, it, yeah, is where virtue really lies. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Okay. I don't think we need to tweak people. Yeah, I don't buy that one. I agree with the other no, three to an extent, true. but I buy I don't buy that one. All right. Well, just a, just a theory we're trying out. If you'd like to discuss the article, it'll be in the show notes, and you can go right into the forums. Okay. So at the so Harry goes up to Gryffindor Tower with Ron, and then he has a dream which he immediately forgets. So I'm convinced that we're supposed to know about this, and really like let's think about it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read it out, and then we're gonna you know do a little bit of analysis, and I'm also gonna bring some comments from the forums. Here's, here's, the, here's the quote. Perhaps Harry had eaten a bit too much because he had a very strange dream. He was wearing Professor Quirrell's turban, which kept talking to him, telling him he must tra transfer to Slytherin at once because it was his destiny. Harry told the turban he, turban he didn't want to be in Slytherin. It got heavier and heavier. He tried to pull it off, but it, it tightened painfully, and there was Malfoy, laughing at him as he struggled with it. Then Malfoy turned into the hook-nosed teacher, Snape, whose laugh became a high and cold. There was a burst of green light, and Harry woke, sweating and shaking. So I, you know, this, at first I just saw the stream and I was like, okay, it's a collaboration of all of, you know, Harry's various, you know, bad guys who, not bad guys, but with Quirrell thrown in the mix, he has a bad feeling towards uh, Malfoy and Snape, obviously. But we actually got some pretty interesting comments from the forums. What are your guys' initial reaction? I think it's or a great bit of foreshadowing. I mean, Voldemort is already in Harry's mind, even I think in a kind of unconscious way. I think, I, I think it's great. Yeah. Here's, a, here's something from Snape Escape. I think it's pretty symbolic of what the near future holds for Harry. Bear with me here, because some of this may be a little far-fetched, but you said you liked wacky theories, right? In the dream, the turban is talking to Harry and telling him to transfer to Slytherin, because that's supposedly his destiny. Now, on first thoughts, I believe this to be Voldemort somehow communicating with Harry through the dream, but after a bit more thought, I came up with another idea. What if it was the part of Voldemort lodged within Harry, the Horcrux, spoiler, that manifested itself in the dream. What if Harry's conscious, consciousness is intermingled with this part of the Dark Lord and that he's having a sort of inward battle during the dream? Harry told the turban he didn't want to be in Slytherin. After this, the narrator states that the turban gets heavier and heavier. I think that this symbolizes to, 
the hold that Voldemort gains over Harry in the years to come, not only emotionally as he murders his friend Cedric, but also mentally, as Harry begins to see things through Voldemort's eyes and physically as he feels his scar prickle. The narrator goes on to say that the turban tightened painfully. Couldn't this be a foreshadowing of the burning of Harry's scar? Uh, Malfoy turns into Snape and a flash of green light. So I'll leave that up to someone else to try and figure out. Okay, so that's pretty cool. Snape Escape is suggesting that this whole dream is like uh, a microcosm of the whole book to come. And that it's all already suggestion of the Horcrux. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, in so many interviews, Joe has said she knew exactly what she was going to do from the first book, and I think this cements that. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a lot of really good foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And already the connection between Voldemort and Quirrell so much. It, it's, uh... Yeah, Quirrell is this curious character. I love... I, you just said all the foreshadowing. Very, very interesting. It builds on the idea of Harry's prophetic dreams as well, which obviously becomes such an important part of later books like Order of the Phoenix. Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. I just think that, you know, dreams in uh, in fiction are just great places to close read and to think about. And the fact that the next line is Harry forgot it the next morning. I, I just can't leave this alone. I feel like there's there's something here to be discussed. Great. So that's the end of chapter seven. Okay. So chapter eight is The Potions Master. The potions monster. And we begin with a change of pace. Um, we've been introduced to so many wonders of the magical world in the last couple of chapters um, that now we're, we're taking a small step back and being introduced to the kind of everyday mundane life of Hogwarts. Um, and the first thing we're greeted with are the whispers in the hallways following Harry around. Um, so we're really getting to see the extent of Harry's fame now that the wizarding world can put a face to the legend that is Harry Potter. Um, the, one of the first things that he says, however, is about the Hogwarts staircases, which seem to move, and he's never quite sure where he's going, which isn't really particularly useful in a school where you've got <laughs> a huge new class of students trying to find their way around. Um, he, we're also told that the ghosts um, and the portraits don't really help give directions or anything like that. So do you think that the teachers would accept... Um, the story about Peeves being a reasonable reason to be late, or not? Not McGonagall. Not McGonagall. Maybe some of them would be more forgiving. Yeah, but I mean, he's... Peeves is so troublesome to everybody. I mean... Uh, and, uh, you know, evidently controlled by the Bloody Baron, strangely. Right, not even prefects, as Percy tells us. Let's, uh, let's give a quick brief about what a poltergeist is, because it's not a ghost, it's slightly different. So, according to the wiki, a poltergeist is a paranormal phenomenon which consists of, a, consists of events alluding to the manifestation of an imperceptible entity. Okay. <laughs> Such manifestations typically include inanimate objects moving or being thrown about, sentient noises such as impaired knocking, pounding, scratching, or banging, and on some occasions, physical attacks of those witnessing the events. Poltergeists seem to be a manifestation of events um, by nature kind of problematic and disruptive. However, in the case of... Uh, the Hogwarts poltergeist, it's an actual kind of person, which is something like like half ghost, half person, which is just causing reckless trouble with a personality. Yeah, I mean, Joe describes him as not a ghost, but an indestructible spirit of chaos that haunts the halls of Hogwarts. I mean, that sounds pretty mischievous. I think it's really interesting that he is solid looking rather than pearly white and transparent like the other Hogwarts ghosts. 
Yeah, yeah. Why is it that he's so different from the other ghosts? Why does he have this kind of physical presence in Hogwarts, whereas the others don't? Right, because, you know, he's able to pick things up and throw them at, throw things at the students. Um, so he obviously is able to come into contact with physical things better than ghosts can. But then there's also the aspect of, like, why does the Bloody Baron, you know, scare um, Peeves into fixing his behavior? Like, what is what can the Bloody Baron do to Peeves? Because... Right, because we know ghosts can't touch things. So yeah, right. what what can he do? Is there some Where way that ghosts can interact to, you know, cause harm or something in Peeves because he's sort of in limbo between the the human world and the ghost world? He's Was Peeves privy to actually both? I don't know. a human or a mm. witch or a wizard? Sorry, do do we know that? I don't. I, no, I actually, I don't think we're ever told. I tried to because, find that earlier, and I couldn't find anything Yeah, because if he's it. not, yeah. the Bloody Baron might from? just have um, an, we don't know. an air of respect about him, or fearsome. And, and if if he is a different entity, then there's no, there's nothing telling us the Bloody Baron can't cause harm. The concept of poltergeists are just really interesting. Um, in In kind of paranormal theory, they are thought to be manifestations of emotions and of events rather than of actual people. So you don't actually necessarily have had to have someone die um, and have an actual spirit in that area for poltergeist to be created. So we need to blame the marauders then for their um, very mischievous attitudes. (laughs) (laughs) But Peeves could either be um, maybe the physical manifestation of all of the turmoil that created the ghosts of the Grey Lady and the Bloody Baron. Maybe the suicide created Peeves. Oh. oh. So the, wow. Okay. I like that. that oh, would I make like sense. that very much. I it's too. possible. And that's why they're all connected. And that's why Peeves listens to him. That makes sense. And why he's horrified of him. Right. Ooh. It wouldn't necessarily describe his... Uh, it wouldn't, like, create his appearance. So why is he a little man with a bell-covered hat and an orange bow tie? We'll never find out. Um, but it would explain the connection and it would explain why it's such a kind of chaotic um, figure. Yeah, well, it's not canon, but I'm, I'll take it. I like it. I do too. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, even worse than Peeves, however, was the caretaker, Argus Filch. Um, Harry and Ron managed to get on the wrong side of him on the very first morning. We've we've talked about Filch a tiny bit earlier on, but I want to really go into detail about him here. Um, how do you guys think Filch ended up at Hogwarts? We know that he's a squib, um, and he probably never attended Hogwarts himself, so is he the child of a magical family, and that's why he doesn't really like magical children, in the same way that Petunia doesn't like is. magic? I, I feel like we know this. Wasn't he, he was a child of a, a magical family, and he loved Hogwarts so much that he actually he was able to stay there? I mean, I really, yeah, I really like the um, the the comparison to Petunia uh, because I I think there is probably I mean even though he may have loved Hogwarts, there's probably some um, some bitterness um, to toward those who do have magic, something he clearly can't do. Yeah, and and we know with his his secret quick spells, he desperately wants to get involved. Right, just like Petunia be... tried to you know send a letter to Dumbledore to get in. Yeah, being a squib just sucks. You're you're in the middle of two worlds, and you, you you're conscious of the magical world, but you can't you can't reach like, and you know you never will. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this is a little bit of insight in Argus uh, Filch's character. He's just that's why part of why he's so bitter. 
is, you know, he feels so, un, you know, disuseful or, or not, not full, not full so to his fullest magical. Why would you stay at somewhere like Hogwarts if this is something that's been denied to you? I mean, we see Mrs. Fig um, as the main other squib that we, we see in the tale, and she's obviously living a, a happy life with her cats. What is the connection with cats and squibs, maybe? Um, but, Ooh. <laughs> oh, that is interesting. Why well, I mean, we know that they're, we know from Fantastic Beasts that they're measles, right? So, yeah. They're not just regular cats. But does Mrs. Fig have measles? Yes, she does. I'm, okay, I'm fairly sure that she does. Okay, yeah, I think okay. I think that that's even said in Pottermore. Okay, I, I think Filch just had incredible love for the school, like even even towards the end, and mm. with that love is also his, you know, his bitterness, his feeling bitter. But he's as close to the magic as he can possibly be, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really easy to understand him a lot more when you think about how. He's always watching these children's me- children mess around with magic and kind of disrespecting it um, and not following the rules and not appreciating what they have. I don't know. I, I, for me, I think if I was a squib, I think it'd be better to be, I mean, I would feel better being in the community and not being able to participate. At least then I'm surrounded by something that I love, regardless of whether I can do it or not. Yeah, and he clearly like la- latches on to some hope that it can still happen for him. Otherwise, why would he mes- be messing with Quickspell? So, I mean, it's the closest right. thing he could get, and maybe, you know, there is a chance that he could still acquire it. Especially if the entire of his family were part of the Wizarding World. You can't sort of differentiate yourself from your entire support system. You would have to stay within that area. I mean, we don't know if he has any family, but I'm sure his parents were alive when he started working as a caretaker at Hogwarts. Just something to do within that world, instead of just completely alienating themselves in the, in the Muggle world, which would be very difficult for someone who was brought up in that for the 8, 12 years of their life. Yeah, I'm looking on the lexicon, and there isn't any information about his past whatsoever. So, I don't know. It just says that he's a squib, which means he was born to a wizarding family, but can't do magic. That's it. Yeah, like McGonagall, I really hope his background comes out in Pottermore eventually. Yeah, I hope so, too. Okay. I'm sure it will. Probably Chamber of Secrets. The interesting thing about Filch in this chapter is that he catches... Um, Harry and Ron trying to get through the door on the third floor corridor. They don't know at that point where they are. They don't realise it's the third floor corridor, which has obviously been um, banned. Um, But they are rescued from Filch by Quirrell, who was just passing. So is this foreshadowing, or are they unknowingly unknowingly, um, stopping Quirrell from investigating the corridor again? I thought this was great. I mean, Quirrell was clearly just scoping it out because uh, at this point he, he he's pretty sure that the stone is there, but he can't be positive. Um, and you know, great on Joe for just putting that in there. We as readers, the first time we obviously wouldn't know it, but going back, you know, clear foreshadowing. And maybe maybe Harry and Ron did accidentally kind of dupe him, which is kind of funny. Yeah, I agree. Like as you mentioned, I definitely didn't catch it the first time, and I do think it's a little bit of both. Um, so, yeah, looking back at it now, it's. I think it is definitely likely that they inadvertently stopped him from getting a little too close uh, to the court to the the door. Yeah, and and we'll keep we'll keep noting signs where he is mentioned, like near the uh, the third floor corridor, mm-hmm. which is quite often. Yep. believe it or yeah. not. Yeah, I lost. I also love how it was said. It was he was rescued by Professor Quirrell. She's all. Uh, Joe is obviously not even giving an inkling of how of his actual motives. 
she's not even allowing us to think that, so it creates the twist at the end so much more brilliant with so yeah. much more brilliance. Just the odd word here and there, even with the foreshadowing, it just gives you the more of a shock towards the end. Sorry, I just like that part. Yeah. Definitely. He's he's always present at the place where the bad thing happens, but we never kind of align him with evil. Mm-hmm. Right. Just um, a slightly dodgy smell. So after Harry straight away manages to find himself at the third floor corridor, he eventually finds his way to his lessons, um, where he finds out that there was a lot more magic uh, mo- a lot more to magic than waving your wand and saying a few funny words. Um, immediately, we are introduced to the idea that we have astronomy every Wednesday, um, herbology three times a week. We've got history of magic, charms, transfiguration, defense against the dark arts, and potions. Reading the transfiguration scene, McGonagall turns a desk into a pig and then back again. And I was like, well, wait a second. Did she just create a pig out of nowhere? Did she transfer a pig from some up, some foreign location? Or is that desk really a pig on the inside? And what are the ethical and ecological ecological concerns of this? Because it seems like there's some environmental issue here. Did she just create an animal? Like, like what exactly is this? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would think that she did not create a brand new pig. Um. But I don't know, like, if she didn't, because if she did, then I think there is a lot of, as you mentioned, ethical concerns. But it, but if she, and then she turned it into a table. Right, and if she, but she if it is a not a real pig, then what in the world is it? Is it just some sort of, like, because it's, I mean, we would assume it's some sort of, it appears to be breathing and living, so. Yeah. It is. Or, or some yeah, kind of illusion, maybe. It's a desk that turns into a pig. I don't think there's a problem with inanimate objects becoming animate objects. We see later on that um, there are goblets that become birds, um, and Hermione obviously conjures her um, little birds later on to attack yeah. Ron. I don't think Pugman. there's a problem yeah. with creating animals. Um, are you creating? They always have to be based on. They always have to be based on life, something. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think essentially you are, you are creating life, but I mean. Like we've already talked about, they don't seem to place any real like concern on it. Yeah, exactly. I think it's new lot. And then what about go for it? What about when you have like Ron, who's just sort of messing about, and he creates a, a goblet, half goblet, half rat, or something to that effect. Yeah, this is torturing animals. I think that's in the movie. That that is in the movie, but I'm sure there's some you know equivalent in the books where yeah. you get a half animal with a. Yeah, you're transfiguring scabbers. That's always been interesting to me because you're transfiguring scabbers, who is actually Peter Pettigrew. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Oh, right. How is that even possible? Right. How many levels can you transfigure a desk into food? No. Well, I mean. I don't think so. If you can transfer it into a pig pig, and then you eat the pig. I don't think you. I don't don't (laughs) want to eat that pig. I'm not going to eat that pig. I don't either. There'd be like pencils in it or something. Yeah, I'm not going to eat that pig. No, I think it'd be a real pig. No. Plus, I, I don't wizards, eat pork anyway, so... I think if the wizards and the, the muggles did join, they could actually fix world hunger. No. No. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> I, okay. No, I mean, I, I, you have a good point. I just, I don't, I'm not, I'm not eating bacon that comes from a pig that comes from a desk. <laughs> no, me, I, yeah, me either. You know what? Especially what if that desk was like a person pretending to be a desk? Oh, Cannibalism. <laughs> Hello? This got really far. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, that was a good discussion about um, transfiguration. <laughs> what about all of the other um, lessons that 
these wizards do not seem to have at their schools. Do wizards not need to know about maths and science and literacy when they've just got all of their magical lessons and nothing else? Yeah, I, th- I think about this a lot, especially where do they get exposed to literature? I mean, obviously they're reading for wand theory or history, but are there any good literary works in the magical world similar to how, you know, A history of magic. We muggles have Shakespeare and Dickens. I mean, I, I would hope. They have Beetle the Bard. Well, well and they also, they I mean, they also have magazines, you know, because we learned that Dumbledore writes for, like, Transfiguration today. Yeah, so. that's true. The Daily Prophet, the Quibbler. Ba- oh, yeah, like, those are quality. But I want, I want to know there's, I want to know there's good literature there. I guess there's some mention in the books, but maybe that's just me that wants that. I mean, Dumbledore says there's a value on music, the greatest magic. A magic far beyond what we do here. Yeah. So I assume writing and, and art, there must be some. There isn't much. Is there? Is there art in the Harry Potter series? Expression. Um. No, but I mean, not in a, like a painting kind of way. But I think that that's. Well, there are. I, I think that. Well, I know, but I think that that's where charms comes in because that's where you can be creative. Yeah. Like, spoiler alert, in the Half-Blood Prince movie. You know, what I'm talking about with the fish? Like, that's artistic. Yeah, Lily's fish. Mm-hmm. Wait, no, the fish is... Uh, that, yeah, right, the movie. But it's artistic, is what I'm saying. So I, I think that you use spells on the Weasley twins. On the Weasley twins are incredibly um, artistic with the, spoiler, the marshes and the, and the um, amazing fireworks they have. And the, the puking pastels, and they're amazing. That alone is brilliant. Right. That, that is a, a good point, good point. Okay, so the next lesson is obviously the title chapter. It is Snape, and it is the Potions Master. Um, and you have a, a double lesson of potions with the Slytherins. Um, and immediately we're introduced to the idea that Harry Potter, our new celebrity, Snape, hates him straight away, and Harry doesn't know why. Um, so, obviously Harry isn't James, but why does Snape never give Harry a chance? Is it just because he looks so much like James that he's kind of always got this physical reminder? He's always kind of mocking him and the loss of Lily? I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, a huge part of it. I mean, at this point, we don't know that because technically we haven't learned that stuff about Lily but yeah I think that and I think it also plays into the prejudice that Harry's in Gryffindor and he's not in Slytherin so Snape just kind of hates him because of who he is and where he is and the house he represents I think it's Rowling setting up um, Snape is the bad guy for the book I mean she's definitely trying to take as we've mentioned already a lot of attention off Quirrell and you know trying to make Snape seem like this really bad guy that's always against Harry so what we're learning from this is that we should never t- trust Joe. She sets Quirrell up as the good guy, Snape up as the bad guy. We later find out more about Dumbledore that we definitely didn't expect. Yep. <laughs> but yes, um, Snape spends the good part of the, the opening of this chapter really kind of deliberately shaming Harry. He knows that Harry has been with the Dursleys for ten years. He, Snape actually personally knows Petunia. Um, so he knows that Harry would never have had a chance to learn um, all of the answers to the questions that he will then give him. So, memory test, guys. I want you guys to answer this question. Okay, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? Bing, ding, 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 ding. The draught of living death. 
Yay! Um, where would you look if I told you to find me a bezel? Ding ding. From the stomach of a goat. Yay! Which is, of course, incredibly important later on. Mm-hmm. Yep, or at least it is to Ron Weasley. Yes. Um, and tell me, what is the difference between monkshood and wolfsbane? They are the same. Oh, ding, ding, ding. They are the same. Bonus if you can tell me the third item. Ding. Akanai. <laughs> Yay. Good job, guys. Well done, everyone. <laughs> yeah, Ravenclaw, Gryffindor, they rule. And of course, Hermione knows the answer to every single one of these questions. She puts her hand up every time, but Harry doesn't know. Um, so we get the brilliant, brilliant line from Harry saying, I don't know, sir, but I think Hermione does. Um, for which Snape only takes one single point from Gryffindor for cheek. Because um, he knows he's being this... a jerk. <laughs> he knows he's being a jerk. Exactly. Yeah, one, one point's not too bad. But um, No, that's the point. It's not, it's not too bad at all. Um, you would expect Snape to take more points. Maybe like five seems to be the set number for most people. Um, which makes me ask, how does the point system at Hogwarts work? Um, who decides how many points can be taken for each offence? And is like is talking back to a teacher really only worth one point? I think it's pretty arbitrary, and especially in the beginning of the beginning of the course, he knows that he can create a lot of drama just by a single point, and you know it'll continue to increase in points as they learn a bit more about how it works and they get more comfortable, you know. Right, as they grow up and they should know better, they get more points yeah, so taken actually, away. I think he was being incredibly fair, you know, in as much as he was being unfair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting. We, unless, you know, I'm forgetting some things, it's only um, Professor Snape and McGonagall, maybe Umbridge later, that we ever see taking points away. Like, I don't ever remember hearing Sprout or Flitwick or even Trelawney, you know, taking away points. No, they're always giving them, aren't they? Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Well, they're also seen as the kind of harsh teachers, right. you know, the ones not to cross. So they're probably more apt to give out or to take away points. What did you guys think of Snape's, uh, Snape's little speech? I mean, even uh, Ron and ha- Harry was like, it was, it was a bit, kind of a bit overdramatic. Well, this is the most theatrical we see Snape, I think, the simmering cauldron. How, how does it sound in that, in that, uh, that Potter Puppet Pals episode? Shimmering fumes. Noah? Not yeah. this again. The delicate power of liquids that creep through human veins. <laughs> Bewitching the mind, ensnaring the senses. <laughs> I can teach you how to bottle fame. Don't need it. Through glory. <laughs> Even for to stop on death. No, you can't. But anyway, that you know, in as much as it's silly, it's kind of accurate. Snape is a—he's a character. He's a silly. You know, he's very—he's very overdramatic. He's into his art, and you know, speaking of arts, potion making is an art to him, and a passion. And so, from one big character to a giant character, um, we then move on from Snape um, to go and visit Hagrid in his hut, um, and and. W- Hagrid's hut is very much the woodsman's hut. It's filled with pheasants and hams and it's got patchwork quilts everywhere and there's a a roaring fire. Um, And you really get an idea of this kind of almost pagan aspect of the man from the woods um, with Hagrid. He's a bit like the green man and he's a bit like just this this very in touch Mm, with nature and in touch with the animals kind of character. Um, And straight away, um, Hagrid talks to Ron about Charlie and the dragons, um, which is 
both a reminder of Hagrid's obsession and also foreshadowing for Norbert. Um, how important do you guys think this moment is? I, I think it's great. There's actually an essay in the Alohomora section called Nature and Hagrid by uh, Skay? Sky? Uh, anyway, a great user. And just going in, into detail about how Hagrid really reflects nature. And as you said, Kat, uh, who, who's that character from Lord of the Rings? The, the, the Ent? Uh, Treebeard. 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 You know, even even Tom Bombadil, if we want to go Lord, all Lord of the Rings. But but this is true. He's, uh, you know, he is nature. And it's it's kind of funny uh, in this essay, Sky or Sky was also talking about how that connects him to, to love and these sort of natural forces that, you know, permeate the whole Harry Potter series. So maybe we, we can sort of pick Hagrid as the source of the, the morality of the series, you know, and very connected to the sort of natural myth of nature and, uh, you know, just, just naturalness. So it was great. It was great to see that essay, and we're going to be putting up many more as we go on. So thank you for that, Skay. But yeah, an incredible moment for for Haggard right here, meeting the group, and uh, obviously he wants to be friends with Harry because he sends that letter, and because he cared about his parents. So it was really cool to see him in this very like first chapter of you know Harry fully being in Hogwarts. Yeah, and we learned so yeah. much in this one little chapter. I mean, we don't know that we learn it till later, but we right, do. right. The classes it flows nicely, and then we get that little bit about the break in at Gringotts. Definitely, this shows that Harry's just—he's amazing at details. He gets all of these little clues throughout all of the stories, and it's just—he's the one that's always the one to put it together and to connect the dots and to find out what's really happening. Um, and I think you—you you really see that in this chapter with the Gringotts break in, where he—he um, he sees that it was on his birthday, and he sees that it was that date that everything happened. He's very clever. Just yeah. like, I mean, I think we brought that up in episode one. Yeah, yeah, for 11. He's very clever. But there's, there's, this, there's one bit right here where, where Hagrid, um, you know, Harry is telling Hagrid about how Snape seems to hate him. And Hagrid says, rubbish, why would he hate you? And Harry, you know, is pretty sure at this point that Hagrid is hiding something. Yeah, Hagrid, it, the line says that Hagrid didn't quite meet his eyes when he said that, so... I was thinking, what, do, what does Hagrid really know? And this is yet another clue where we see he seems to have this, you know, hidden information either from Dumbledore or elsewise. And I, I didn't realize that he, he, he knew about the whole Snape. How much does he know about Snape and the Potters? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, kind of playing on that in general, you know, it makes me wonder what Harry would have been able to figure out without Hagrid being pretty terrible at keeping things secret. You know, and it kind of makes me wonder... You know, Dumbledore, we know from earlier in this book, trusts Hagrid so much. Um, but he's terrible at leaking things to the trio. Is that is it exclusive to just those three? Or is he, is he bad in general at um, keeping information secret? Well, I mean, I think he's definitely bad in general. I mean, you know, in, in the later, you know, later in the book, in the whole bar scene at the Hogshead, mm -hmm. I mean, he's... He's got loose lips, that Hagrid. And unfortunately, not many other characters like to speak with Hagrid, like especially the children. It, it's really the, just the trio. And it's just because he's, he seems so intimidating, even though he's, he's fluffy on the inside. And he knows, so I, he, he, he knows a lot more than he lets on, I think. Oh, and he lets yeah. it on anyway. What, in this moment, what do you think that it is? What do you think that he is actually avoiding saying when he doesn't meet his eyes? Is he avoiding saying that Snape was a Death Eater? Or is he avoiding saying that Snape doesn't like Harry because of his parents? Um, I think it's every, everything. If you remember, all of that. 
if you remember Hagrid, Hagrid's age, I mean, he was at school with Tom Riddle. Um, he would have been at Hogwarts through the entire time the Marauders were there. That's true. Yeah, so he definitely he knows the about the Snape thing firsthand. Yeah, he definitely knows about Snape and Lily. Does he? I, I don't no. know if he knows about that. No, no, no. Hagrid was at school with Voldemort. Tom Riddle, but, not with the Marauders. Right, but he would have been the groundskeeper while they were he at school. Ga- yeah, he would have been gamekeeper. I, didn't, oh, right. I don't know okay. if he knew about. I thought you. I thought you meant as a student. I apologize. I think we can we can yeah. speculate about how much he knew about the love. I don't. I don't think he knew that much. I don't. No, I don't think. I don't think Dumbledore told anybody about um, what Snape told him. But if he would have no, seen I, them at like on the grounds, I think he could have figured. Yeah, it but out. this isn't like an extra layer of, of uh, socialness that I think Hagrid was probably excluded from. Like like Snape's feelings for Lily, I don't think he even revealed to James. Everyone else did. I'm not... Maybe not his feelings, but his friendship was definitely there. I think um, the idea that Lily would always stand up for Severus, um, that that seems to be clear throughout the whole of the worst memory thing. Is that that worst memory is the moment where she decided to stop sticking up for him, and that's that's when they're doing the owls, isn't this it? Is true. They've had five years of this friendship at Hogwarts. It, it's kind of unclear to what degree Hagrid had a part of this uh, the Marauders' history. I really don't know. But uh, see, I I think Hagrid's a little dense. I, as much as I love Hagrid, um, I think he doesn't pick up on subtle things very exactly. much. So I honestly don't think he. I don't think he would have figured that out. Yeah, lo- lovable guy. So do you think he's just hiding the Death Eater? Yeah, I do. That's probably it. Or he could just be hiding the fact that um, James was horrible to Snape when he was younger. I mean, no one really wants to find out that their father was so malic- malicious to someone to another pupil. It could just be that. Yeah. It could be a collection of all those things. But we'll never know inside the mind of Hagrid. Hmm. Maybe we will. Maybe it'll come out on Pottermore. Or the encyclopedia. That's true. (laughs) This encyclopedia better be huge. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, I agree. Like 12,000 pages. I would read every page. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. Um, so if you have any comments on that, you should over, head over to alohomora.mugglenet.com. Uh, you can comment right on the main page or click on the forums tab and comment on any of the uh, threads that are in there. Yeah. So just in general, any of those comments we made, because that pretty much uh, wraps up our chapter discussion mm-hmm. for this episode. And we're going to go ahead and move into um, our special feature for this episode, which is Noah's close read. Mm-hmm. So I'll pass that on to you, Noah. What do you, how do you want to introduce that? Well, the whole idea with a close read, and it's really, it, it's something we do in the English major and any, any sort of literature analytical studies, you take a passage, a single passage, and you analyze it. And you, you kind of pull things out, theories, you look at the words specifically, and you just, you build from that. So I asked the fans in Noah's Nook to take a look at the Sorting Hat song. And I think it'd be, it would be great if we just used this passage to talk about sorting in general. And this is the first time the hat is telling us anything about sorting. Um, so I think we should really take a listen and, you know, see what we come up with. How does it work in this, in the hat's words? Okay, sounds good. Let's hear it. Oh, you may not think me pretty, but don't judge on what you see. I'll eat myself if you can't find a smarter hat than me. You can keep your bowlers black, your top hat sleek and tall, or I'm the Hogwarts sorting hat, and I can cap them all. There's nothing hidden in your head the sorting hat can't see. So try me on, and I will tell you where you ought to be. You might belong in Gryffindor, or dwell the brave at heart. The daring nerve and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. You might belong in Hufflepuff, where they are just and loyal. 
those patient Hufflepuffs are true and unafraid of toil. Or yet in wise old Ravenclaw, if you're already mind, where those of wit and learning will always find their kind. Or perhaps in Slytherin you'll make your real friend. Those cunning folks use any means to achieve their end. So put me on, don't be afraid, and don't get in a flap. You're in safe hands, though I have none, for I'm a thinking cap. Hooray. <laughs> wow, that sorting hat sounds a lot like you, Noah. Here's an interesting line. There's nothing hidden in your head the sorting hat can't see. So we know the sorting hat's legilimens, but he's also this unconscious invader. And as soon as you put his hat on, it seems that he, he downloads all of your thoughts. This is, this is incredibly intrusive for, for a first year, wouldn't you say? But I guess it has to be done. I would hate that, for someone to know everything. Does the sorting hat... I think it knows everything and remembers everything. So it's this, like, growing library of consciousnesses. Is that... I wonder if that's the proper plural. Anyway, of... I, I'm not sure. I think he... I don't think he holds on to them. I think he lets them go as soon as the hat is gone. I think... No, but he remembers... He remembers the accounts. Like, he, when he sees Harry, he says, no. Well, that, that's, that's one thing to remember them, but... Uh, no, I don't know. But isn't that wording interesting? There is nothing in your head that the sorting hat can't nothing. see. Because we know about, or at least we will later know, that there is something in Harry's head that no one else can see. Which is, which is troubling. Does the sorting hat know? I, I, think, I think magically it remembers all. And that's why after each year it gives, uh, it gives an account of, you know, it'll give a different sound about the, the chaos in the wizarding world. And we, we know it, it doesn't read the newspaper or the Daily Prophet, it knows everything it knows from the, the student minds that it's read over the years. And from listening to Dumbledore. And listening to Dumbledore. Those cunning folks use any means to achieve their ends. And that's what it means. So, so that is the dignifying characteristic of Slytherin. You get you what you want, no matter at what, whatever cost. Yeah, I can understand. And, you know, and can you want, Nicola, is that like, does that really speak to it? Um, yes. From what that explicitly says we will we will climb over anyone to get what we want. Um, but when it comes down to it, not necessarily explicitly a bad thing. Because exactly, I don't think it says that you'll climb over anyone because the the line immediately before that is you'll yes, make your and real that's, friends. Yeah. So as long as you are a Slytherin, you True. are okay. So, uh, we, so, as in the family sort of aspect of the Slytherin, you'll. You bound, you bind together to create a loyal conglomeration of people who will go around any means, be it slightly um, un illegal, to achieve your goals and possibly to do what you got to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and then again, as I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can definitely be, <laughs> but not necessarily always. No, I like it, and it, it seems to be tied to this, as we were saying. Uh, you'll make your real friends. That is like one thought, and the next line is the other half of that thought. Yeah. So it's as if, you know, with your Slytherin group, you you ignore social conventions of, of you know, conservative behavior, you an... and you just do what needs to be done, and you do, you know, you do for you, because it's your life, and you also think you it's good. You create an elite. Yeah, but, you know, to a degree, you're, uh, you're a self-creating elite, because you've the whole notion of being an elite is... You know, isolating yourself. True. Um, and like, so you know, Slytherin it it creates itself. These are all tied to ideologies. It's really cool that Joe created the system of houses that you know people really are this. Maybe we can. This is a personality test that is quite quite real. I, I love how it says in the um, Pottermore introduction thing for Slytherins, 
Um, Ravenclaws are famous for clambering over each other to get good marks, whereas we Slytherins are brothers. I like that. I don't yeah, know. You're, you're it's family. just really. Um, and then it's also good in the corridors of Hogwarts. Um, you can always be glad you've got a serpent on your side. That's nice to know. It just shows that we are powerful. We will do what we want, and it, it, it sort of we get respect for it. And I think for some people right. that is more than it's more than anything we need. It's very much a prized trait. Sorry. <laughs> no, I I I'd, I'd agree with that, and I think uh, I think I think the entire series we get Slytherin through Harry, so we we don't really see the the true version. We only see the you know. The, the bad stuff. But there's a, there's a lot to be seen here, and I hope in the encyclopedia we get get even more about the, the, the inner workings of, of Draco, of other key Slytherins, and, you know, just Slytherin House in general. I'm definitely looking forward to that as well, yeah. So what houses did you guys get sorted into on Pottermore? I am a Gryffindor and definitely proud of it. Yeah, I'm in Ravenclaw myself, which was surprising. I was a Hatstall, but I chose... Um, Hufflepuff over Ravenclaw. Yeah, I was. I was actually a Hatstall. Uh, the very same. It was between Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff. And to be honest, when I first went into the the test, I I did think that Hufflepuff was kind of wrong for me because I do have, you know, you know, a slight bit of ambition, and you know, I kind of an ego. And I always saw Hufflepuff as being without an ego in a way, or you know, sort of being very respectful and, and kind. Nah, I'd say I'm a pretty good guy. But I never really considered Hufflepuff until I read an essay on the Muggleneck Quibbler that someone submitted. You know, a, a few a few essays really defending Hufflepuff as just people who, you know, they kind of see the they see that all the houses are kind of really biased. You know, even theirs to a degree, and they just want they really see the excellence in bringing all, you know, all wizard kind together or having you know a group where it doesn't really matter what you are. You can be a collaboration of all different values and still fit. So. While taking the test that last time, and while I was the hat stall, I was thinking that Hufflepuff was just a very logical and, and you know good place to be. And Nicola, you're you're a Slytherin, right? I am, yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Um, well, on Pottermore, we actually get a really great um, bit of information about the Sorting Hat. I mean, we touched on this briefly before. The famous Hogwarts Sorting Hat gives an account of its own genesis in a series of songs sung at the beginning of each school year. Legend has it that the hat once belonged to one of the four founders, Godric Gryffindor, and that it was jointly enchanted by all four founders to ensure that students would be sorted into their eponymous houses, which would be selected according to each founder's particular preferences and students. The sorting hat is one of the cleverest enchanted objects most witches and wizards will ever meet. It literally contains the intelligence of the four founders, can speak through a rip near its brim, and is is skilled at... I can never say this. Legilimency. Legilimency, which enables it to look into the wearer's head and divine his or her capabilities or mood. It can even respond to the thoughts of the wearer. The sorting hat is notorious for refusing to admit it has made a mistake in its sorting of a student. On those occasions when Slytherins behave altruistically or selflessly, when Ravenclaws flunk all their exams, when Hufflepuffs prove lazy yet academically gifted, and when Gryffindors exhibit cowardice, the hat steadfastly backs its original decision. On balance, however, the hat has made remarkably few errors of judgment over the many centuries it has been at work. What a, what a great description. I, I love that it just, it, 
it seems like the hat really is truly alive. Like it's a real person. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. But why does Joe have to say the academically gifted thing? Again, it's another thing about Hufflepuffs not being clever, and it's just not true. Well, well it seems like whatever house you are, you can be brave, you can be uh, courageous, intelligent, or, you know, ambitious. It really doesn't well, seem to matter. But but I think that there's, like, one trait for each house that is the, you know, the top of the pyramid. So 98% of Ravenclaws are smart. Um, 98% of Slytherins are cunning. You know, I think sure. that there's that one key trait is that is what puts you in that house. And you can have traits from all the houses, but I think it's that one at the top of the pyramid that determines you where see, you belong. And kind of, yeah, what's, what do you think, Caleb? Well, I was going to play off what Rosie said because I thought about um, that also the first time I read it. But I think more um, with that description about Hufflepuff, it's that they usually work really hard and they earn good, in this case, good marks because of it. So I think this is more playing on um, so we- like they're still getting good marks without really working for it. So I think in a way it's not trying to slam Hufflepuff, but it's showing that it would be odd if they weren't working hard for something. Well, my personal philosophy is uh, with all the houses, it, it doesn't really matter what kind of traits you have. The, the sorting hat actually sorts you based on your preferences of how you value intelligence or how you value courageousness, irrespective of what you actually are, maybe. That, that, that would mean that it's all in the choice, in a way, which, would be, which is a kind of in- interesting reading. That's my personal philosophy about it. We should talk about some interesting sortings, um, um, such as Peter Pettigrew. Um, who is placed in Gryffindor, but is definitely not brave. No, not at all, Exactly, right? but yeah. he probably he saw his friends being sorted into uh, into Gryffindor. I mean, Sirius Black, Black, so he was sorted one of the first into Gryffindor. Uh, James Potter, um, that's after, after him. Would have come but, after. Uh, you know, Lupin, that was before. He's definitely a smudge on, I mean, I would, as a Gryffindor, I say he's a smudge on our house, um, so... I, don't, I mean, I, I don't have the answer for as to why he was What there. about the end when he protected Harry? You... Of course, it was a life debt. He had to, yeah. but... Well, that's because... He well, owed you him, know, sort of. He owed him. But, I mean, do you think Pettigrew asked to be in Gryffindor? What house does do we I'm think sure he, he belongs in? I don't... Yeah, that that's another good thing. I don't know where else to put him. Uh, I don't want to say Slytherin. <laughs> no. like the, I was the waiting obvious no. answer. <laughs> I... I I definitely do not. I think Slytherin's the last house he belongs in. He is not cunning. Yeah. He is not. He not does clever. not belong in Slytherin at all. Well, I mean, to live as a rat. I don't, but but wouldn't that leave him in Hufflepuff? And I feel like he's way uh, Hufflepuff is too to good. To disguise him. himself yeah. as a rat and to elude <laughs> the the Marauders at the end that that is pretty clever. I would I would think I would put him in Hufflepuff as well, despite being Hufflepuff myself. Um, I think the the commitment that he showed to being a rat for so long um, <laughs> proves that he's hardworking and Very he's good. he's weirdly loyal. Um, he's not loyal to his friends, unfortunately, but he he is loyal to himself. Himself, um, <laughs> and he's loyal to the Dark Lord when it happens, and he's he's loyal to Harry when he has the debt to repay. Um, so yeah, I would. I think he would be more of a Hufflepuff, really, than a Gryffindor. I could see that. I just didn't want to insult you. No, he certainly, he certainly put himself <laughs> in Gryffindor. Probably begged the hat silently. Um, we've been asking on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook um, for all of our fan reactions to their houses and what they feel about their yeah. specific houses. Um, so some comments from Twitter. We've got Jay Hewlist, um, who says, "I love Gryffindor's chivalry." 
It is a bit of an old-fashioned notion, but it brings with it strong morals, honour, and fairness. And I really like that comment. I do like that. That's nice. I love it also. As the token Gryffindor. <laughs> Got Seraphin RBE, who says Slytherin is determination, cunning, and intelligence. Um, Black Ink Pen, who says a Ravenclaw's willingness to go above and beyond to seek knowledge and truth is incredible. Mm. Absolutely, I would agree. Um, Stupefy Menezes, I think, um, says Hufflepuff's welcome welcoming nature. No one is ever rejected. Um, and their morals um, value family and friends above all else. That's my motto. So yeah, there's been plenty of brilliant responses out there. So thank you guys for sending more. Yeah, in. and if you'd like to write uh, a, a short essay or, or create a piece of art reflective of your house, or you'd like to continue this debate, submit something to the Alohomore Alo section, and we'll, we'd love to feature it. So, um, why do you guys remember any of the questions that you got while you were sorted in Pottermore? I thought we could maybe talk about those and our responses if any of more than one of us got. The yeah, same I got question. I got a really tough question. Um, it was uh, which would you rather be? Feared, liked, praised, imitated. Um, did, did you guys get that question? Yep. Yeah, I, I remember getting that one. I'm trying to think of um... or trusted. That was the other option. What were the options again? I don't think I, I don't think I got that one. It, it was which would you rather question. be? Feared, trusted, praised, liked, or imitated? Or envied. Or envied. Right. And that was that threw me off, and I I spent maybe half hour with that one. <laughs> I spent a long time on this one. Yeah, yeah. I know. How long did it take you guys to sort? A very long just... time. Yeah, me too. It took almost an hour. I, I think. really, I really thought about it. I I wanted to get it right, you know. Me, me too. And uh, I think I think I picked trusted because uh, even though I, I do I I do generally want to be liked, and I really you know toyed with that one, but that the. It seemed very selfish, and I like I wondered how selfish was I, and I really had to kind of struggle with that. But then I realized that going further, I'd like to be trusted. I want people to come to me and you know talk about not necessarily their deepest secrets, but feel that that closeness that they could do that. And you know, looking back, I guess that's essential Hufflepuff to to want to to want to be that close to people or be open, or maybe it's even Slytherin, or maybe it's it's all houses, and I'm, I'm totally wrong. But I chose I chose trusted. I remember. I also trust, yep, I chose trusted also. Yeah, it clicked with me. I think I would have, if I had that question, I probably would have chosen liked, believe it or not. I would, that was my second. Yeah. Um, I do remember one of the questions I got. It said, um, once every century, the Flutterby bush produces flowers that adapt their scent to attract the unwary. If it lured you, what would it smell of? And the choices were the sea, fresh, partment, fresh parchment, home, and a crackling log Ooh. fire. And I had that question as well. Hmm. Yeah. Did anyone else? I did not. No. Well, I definitely chose the sea because I love the sea. I love the water. Anything having to do with, with water. I love it. I chose fresh parchment. Um, as did I. I. That kind of, as a literature student, that's kind of my thing. I just, the smell of books. Open up a relatively of, old book. Kind of paper and writing. Oh, yeah. man. I would have picked, picked home. All right. Oh. I mean, we can speculate about how these touch on various houses, but I can't think of it right now. It just seems so, you know, abstract. Another, the oh. question that um, I really probably sat for 10 minutes trying to answer was black or white. Did you guys get this question? I did. Black or white. I, it was a terrible question. I mean, terrible, like, uh, I was just so agonized. <laughs> I was agonized over it. I, I could not figure out what I was going to How about to heads or tails? Um. 
I didn't get that one. I didn't get that one. Got heads or tails, um, moon no, or stars. I, no, I, I definitely I chose, got moon or stars. I got moon or stars too, but I chose white um, because in my real life, I'm a photographer and mm. the white light and everything is all about what I do. So that's why I chose white. White seems to I'm me to sure reflect uh, goodness and, and justice and, and strength. And darkness yeah. seems to be, you know, all negative, all related to, you know, obviously, you know, darkness. Um, you know, if you want to go good and evil, I, I don't know how much it weighed on the actual. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it did, but. What'd you choose, Caleb? I chose black. Um, huh. Because I, I don't I don't think as simply like black is evil, white is good. So that's why it was very it was very challenging for me. And the fact that it was only one or the other for your options. Um, right. No gray. I, I don't know what ended up making me go with black, but that's what I went with. What about moon or stars? You, we all said we got that. What did you choose? Oh, I have to think. I think I ended up going with stars. I chose, I chose moon. Yeah, I chose, I chose stars. Because I think stars, uh, this is just me uh, brainstorming on MuggleNet. I wrote something up. I, it, it seemed to me that the stars spoke to larger universe thinking. Like you, you expand past your own, like other galaxies, past your planet, because uh, you want to seek the other reaches. You, there's something out there for you. And moon, to me, feel, right. felt like, you know, the moon in, in literature is always tied to, to human concerns. We like to put our, our symbolism on the moon, and that seemed to be closer to home, and therefore a less expansive mind, or, or, so, or speaking to a sentiment of a person that doesn't want to expand too far, is quite comfortable where they were. So I just, for me, the, the moon was like, it, it has this power, this sort of unearthly power in our, in our culture, and it, I picked that one. Deep. That doesn't sound like you, though. I know. <laughs> so why'd you? Okay. Well, well, but then I have the okay. other side. I want to. I want to seek out. Cert, I want to seek outward. I want to get that grand truth. That's why that, I was a hat stall. I think it was between Ravenclaw and, and Hufflepuff. All right, between the two. Right. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Another question that um, uh, I found really interesting was how do you want uh people to react when they hear your name after you're dead? Um, the options were miss you and smile, want to hear more stories about your adventures, think about your achievements, or I don't care what happens when I'm dead, it's when I'm alive that matters. That was tough. Did you guys... I don't think I had that question. Hmm. I did. I, I put, uh, I answered want to hear more stories about your adventures. That makes sense. Gryffindor. I think I actually... <laughs> I chose the I don't care what happens. Um, it's when I'm, what I'm alive that matters. Interesting. I think. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a very Slytherin answer. What it was, and it works. <laughs> I think it's a Hufflepuff one as think well. About, think about how intense these questions are, and uh, I imagine a lot of a lot of kids or you know younger people did these questions as well. Like these are these are tough yeah. questions. You really have to you really have to think about them. They're proper soul seeking ones. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and this is nothing against younger people, but does an eight-year-old, you know, if there's an eight-year-old signing up, do they really know how they want people when to react dead? when they hear your name after yeah. they're dead? I mean, also have they had as enough an eight, time to think about that. Yeah, as an eight-year-old, do you have you become the person you are really by that point to be able to answer these accurately? No, and I think that that's actually brought up several times in the books. You know, saying that they sort too early. Double I mean, nine. eleven is probably even too early. Yeah, and yet maybe not. Because it is 11. I, I, I don't know. I think for some people it might be too early. For others, it's not. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Who's to say? JK is. 
She is. Oh, yeah, I suppose, right? The master of the universe. Right. The Harry Potter universe, anyway. Mm. I would be okay with her being the master of all universes. Yeah, I think most of us would be. (laughs) Okay, so should we move on to the posed question of the week? Yeah, what have you got for us, Noah? Okay, well, I think this, this entire episode has been a great deal about the sorting hat and sorting. And what I'd really like to ask the fans is, does when you when you get sorted, how much weight does your choice have in the matter? Is it is it end all be all, or is it really based on some objective traits that you have? And if it is, does that mean that some people are just essentially more intelligent than others? Is Joe making some commentary about intelligence existing in some perfect objective form? Because as far as I'm concerned, you know, intel and some other people believe that intelligence can, can be of many different kinds. So how do we how do we judge this? Is it based on where you want to be? Or is it based on something you essentially have? And uh, and that's the question. So just leave your responses in various places. The best place to do it is right on the front page of Aloha Mora, and we'll read some of the best responses right on the next episode. Awesome. Sound good? I'm ready to hear responses on that. Yeah, it sounds good. I can't wait to hear what people have to say. Okay. So that's the end of episode three of Aloha Mora. A special thanks to Nicola for being our guest fan of the week. Yay. <laughs> I think there's definitely a lot of Slytherins out there who are... Very appreciative of the way you defended them. If any of the fans listening right now want to be on the show, there are several ways that you can do that. Um, the first is you can submit content on the Alohomora main page or on the forums. That's at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Um, we read them all the time. We comment on them. We contribute in the conversation. And if you are contributing and you give us good theories, like many of the ones we read on the page today, we will contact you and ask you to be on the show. The second way is that you can email us a clip of yourself um, analyzing a portion of the Harry Potter books. Um, you can send that to alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. Please note that you need to have proper audio and recording equipment to be on the show. And also, just as a note, we've been getting a lot of recordings from later books, like Deathly Hallows. If you send us a recording from Deathly Hallows, that's great. Um, but we tend to think that that's the book you're interested in analyzing so if you want to be on you know a sorcerer's stone show show or a chamber of secrets show send us something from that book that way we can hear you analyzing material that we're actually going to get to in the next year mm-hmm. yeah and we look forward to having a lot of you on the show and just in general if you uh, find the need to contact us or connect with us through social media just a quick reminder as Kat just mentioned our email is alohamorapodcast at gmail.com Make sure you're following us on Twitter at Alohomora M N and our Facebook, Facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. Also make sure you check out us at mnalohomora.tumblr.com. And just a brief reminder that our main website is alohomora.mugglenet.com. If you missed any of those addresses, you can find links to all of them on our Alohomora main page. Um, and you can also subscribe to us on our iTunes or Android feeds. Um, make sure you do that so you get every single episode of our podcast di- downloaded straight away when it's released. Is it true that we're going to have transcripts of the show soon, guys? Yes, we are. Actually, our transcri- our transcription team is working on them as we speak. They should be up by the time the episode Those is Those are going to be in the Alohomora section on MuggleNet, so you'll be able to go in there and comment directly on the episodes and have even more discussions. Great, so thanks a lot guys. Um, Once again, thank you to Nicola. Um, I'm Rosie. I'm Noah. I'm Caleb. And I'm Kat. Thank you for listening to episode three of Aloha Mora. Open the dump.
One sec, guys. My my parents are knocking up because they have no idea. I'm recording a podcast. Ah, parents. That's all right. I'm going to eat a goldfish. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Do you not have those in the UK? Nope. That is so sad. Goldfish are amazing. Are we still talking about wands? <laughs>